There's no class next week. There's actually no class the week after either. I forgot. Um, next week, Kirtani's giving a satsang at Chela Bhavan, and the following week we're in the final rehearsals for Land of Golden Sunshine, and both I and the temple are occupied. So, so we have two weeks break after tonight. Pardon me? She'll, she's coming uh, on uh, next Tuesday, and she'll spend one or two nights and then go up to the village. So she was uh, kind enough. I think actually, uh, yeah, we, she comes, she spends one night, then we go up to the village. But she was uh, happy to have a satsang the night she comes, because that gives her a chance to see everybody. So it works for everyone. All right. Any other questions or thoughts before we go ahead? So, number 97. Years ago, Dr. Lewis told us, my mother suffered a severe stroke. The doctor said she might not live until morning. The master was in Cuba at the time and couldn't be reached. I prayed to him mentally for help and my prayer was answered. My mother recovered. A few months later, she again fell ill. This time I was able to speak to the master and ask him in person for help. He replied, The Lord has spared her life quite some time now. If she lives another four months, we must be satisfied. It was four months later to the day that she left her body. Several years afterward, Dr. Lewis continued, the master said to me, Your mother has been reborn. I inquired immediately, of course, Where is she living now, sir? He told me where she was, up north in the state of Maine. After some time, I had an opportunity to visit her family. Their little girl, my mother, was three years old by this time. The resemblance was uncanny. There were many little mannerisms, gestures, and movements, all exactly as they had been. The child didn't remember me, but she showed an instant affection for me. And I, quite apart from my special knowledge, felt a natural affection for her. Isn't that a sweet story? Every part of that. <laughs> um, in several places they refer to Master being in Cuba. You know, I, you never, I don't ever remember seeing pictures or hearing any reports of what he did there. I think he, you know, he liked to go to Mexico too. I think he liked getting out of the U.S., just out of the intense left brain materialism of this country into a more tropical zone, who knows. But uh, I, I just, has anyone ever seen pictures or any reports of SRF in Cuba? I suppose whatever might have happened has been so obliterated by what's happened since that. Exactly. Yeah, he had business in Cuba. But also, um, you know, it's very hard to gauge what the effect of prayers is and what really happens. But uh, somehow or another, Master says specifically that her life was extended because of their attachment to her, their desire, because of it was good, good karma for her to work something else out. But then also Master points out that, you know, you can't, you can't ask more of God than is fair. She's, he's already been generous to you. How much longer do you expect this lady to live? And then Master just pins it exactly. What, what, they, what they don't explain, and you're immensely curious, which is, you know, did Dr. Lewis know that family? Did he go up there and say, I'm to total strangers, I understand my mother's been reincarnated as your daughter? Yeah, right. did he, yeah, did he already know them and then could just go and just be friendly and then have this sort of secret thought? 
that she was his mother. Yeah, quite uh, amazing. I, I know one uh, woman friend of mine is quite sure that her grandmother came in as her sister's daughter. Just uh, th- even the same birthmarks. You know, just exactly the same. You, you can see just dying with that attachment. Well, Dr. Lewis's mother went to some other family somewhere else. But still, we just don't know how often when something is happening, what is, if you could see. I remember a story of, the, of Sarada, Sarada Ma, the Holy Mother. Uh, she was visiting some ancient site somewhere, I think, in India. And she just sort of, you know, leaned over to her companions and remarked that these people visiting here lived here 5,000 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's just that's why they're here and that's why they're so interested and they're coming back to see their handiwork. I'm sure all of you have had those experiences at different places around the world. When I went to the Acropolis in Greece, is that what it is, up on the hill above Athens? It was just like, it was such a homey place to me. It was very, very difficult to get me off that hill. Just without having any specifics, just felt, it felt, I guess, that phrase anciently familiar and also just extremely desirable being there. Whatever life I had lived there was such a cheerful one. I just really wanted to be part of it again. I don't have any particular connection to Greece or anything like that, but just that one place, it was, uh, it was mine. How, much, how often is that happening? The houses you buy, you, the vacation spots you choose, the pilgrimages you go on. Yeah, quite, quite fun. And the people you meet. I and mean, just think of, Swamiji said one of the reasons in something I read recently, he said one of the reasons he was giving another twist to people are more important than things. Uh, maybe I said this in class, I don't remember. He was giving a woman certain advice about getting along with a certain person. After you die, all the work you've done will be forgotten, but your relationships, whether harmonious or disharmonious, will continue forever. And the work you do, I mean, may or may not, you, you think of something like all the work that Swami Kriyananda did, but everything eventually just goes away no matter how important. I mean, think of uh, whatever it was that Lord Rama did. We still know about him, or Lord Krishna. We know some of what he did, but so much of what he did, what, what is it now? I mean, his consciousness endures, but, but all the battles he fought, and think about uh, Swami when he was uh, uh, King Henry. And just, I mean, the, if you read the history book, and just the, all the different things that, he was doing to secure this and secure that and win this castle and lose that castle and this and this. I mean, where, what, what is it now? Who even thinks about it? So even when it's important at the time and sets energy in motion, but Swami says, but your relationships, whether harmonious or disharmonious, continue. I also realize they continue in yourself. You know, that, that when you die, this world and everything that you've manifested it, it's, it, it ceases to exist for you as a thing. Van Gogh you know, couldn't take his paintings and um, Swami couldn't take his books. Right? But the, uh, the, the love or lack of it is still in you. And among other reasons why Swami put and Master put so much emphasis on harmony. Yeah, it, was, it, it put an interesting twist on it. I was fascinated by that. And so there you are, you know, you're looking at your mother again in this child form and all your unfinished business is right there in front of you. Or you're looking at your own baby and you're, you're looking at who knows what. You know, husband, wife, 
Yeah, who are you really? <laughs> well, you can't help but ask that question. You see babies sometimes, and there's a, a, a child, um, he's a grown man now, but um, I met him when he was too young to crawl, when his mother put him on a blanket at the East West Bookstore. Over, oh, I point that way because it was when it was still in Menlo Park. And I came in and this, this child was on the, on the blanket and I, there was just something about him. I knelt right down and spent quite a bit of time on the floor. Just, we, all, we just spent a little bit of time together and actually through her, her whole extended family was drawn to our church. And it started there on the floor. <laughs> you know, but it was, it was just that. It was like, I don't know who you are, but I know you. And I've, I've had a peripheral relationship with the man through his life, but not... Um, not central, but still, there it was. And uh, it didn't matter that he was just a little burbling thing in diapers that couldn't even propel himself beyond his blanket. Just there he was. Because <laughs> the full consciousness is present. It's not like, you know, it's so fascinating to realize that. And as Swami also said, the intelligence is there too. It's just there's no language and no context. Babies are fun. There was this child, I wish I had spoken to him, I still regret that I hadn't. He was about three. And he was definitely an old man in a small body. His totem was this little pig. He was carrying this little stuffed pig with a great deal of dignity, <laughs> as if it were his portfolio of investments or something. <laughs> and, and he had a beautiful, elegant mother who was European somewhere, some kind of European. And, and they had a, just a marvelous connection. And I just still remember, I, I, I was a little too shy just to walk up and say, you're fascinating people, why don't you come over to my house for a while? <laughs> but I just still remember that little, that little man, small man and his pig. <laughs> yeah, there you have it. <laughs> All right, shall we go on? Number 98. Samadhi is no Sunday outing, no lark one experiences for the mere fun of it. It creates an absolute revolution in one's consciousness. Samadhi is altogether different from anything the ego can possibly imagine. What does he say in Samadhi poem? Enjoyable beyond imagination of expectancy. Brilliant wordsmithing. Dr. Lewis once told me, I kept asking Master to give me a samadhi. One day I backed him into a corner, so to speak, and insisted that he give me samadhi this very minute. The Master looked at me deeply, demanding almost fiercely, Are you ready for it? If I give it to you this very minute, can you accept a complete change of outlook on everything? My will faltered. I looked down. No, sir, I had to confess. I guess I'm not ready yet. I, Walter, am reminded of something Boone told me. I once asked St. Lynn to give me a taste of ecstasy. He answered, If I gave it to you now, you would not be able to bear your life as it is. Wow, isn't that... Not to be able to bear your life as it is. You'd not be able to stand it. Yeah, and, and the, the contrast. I just... It's really, um, you go back to Master's poem and all the different lines that are in that poem and if you actually were experiencing, you know, I, the 
uh, I, the cosmic sea, watch the little ego floating in me. And it's no small thing. I love also just, um, you know, Dr. Lewis's determination and Master's um, having to work with that. You know, on one hand, you want to encourage that intensity, but on the other one, uh, it really came down to it. Master just knew. So it, it's, it, uh, all of this always to me, and I know it causes everybody to respond differently. I retreat very far from any specific expectation or demands because it's hard to know, you know, what, what, you're, what you're attaching, what your imagination is attaching itself to. I find it much easier just to let life unfold as it unfolds and sort of let them sort it out for me. Yes. Example there of Master didn't just say no, exactly. I won't. He, you know, responded with a question that was the right one to prompt Dr. Lewis to realize that no, mm-hmm. it's not time yet. And also, just imagine Saint Lynn and Master walking around in a consciousness, even though they were with us and communicating with us and being with us, that they knew was so entirely different just so, you know, well, universe apart. And the difference between limitation and infinity is infinite. I, I think of it not, it, yes, but it's similar. I'm so, I remember how, how compassionate Swamiji was toward everyone, but also how impersonal he was about so many things that were so personal to us. I know, where we were so intensely involved in, in this little relationship and that little nuance and this argument that we had with this person and this experience or that. And Swamiji would allow all of that. He never made you feel foolish. But there would always be this, you know, he was just viewing it from such a different perspective. He was always standing at the top of the hill just watching us very kindly but just watching us. And I, it used to, um, frustrate isn't exactly the word, but it just was so confusing to me how on one hand he could be so, um, you, you felt so genuinely supported and not at all uh, demeaned or disrespected or, or not taken seriously. And simultaneously, you could feel that his perspective on what you were experiencing was so different than your own, so impersonal, and so, such a long rhythm, just such an extremely long rhythm. That was the main thing. For, for us, it was just like what's happening today is so important, and what's going to happen tomorrow, and then what's going to happen the year after. And Swami was just thinking that, you know, we'll sort it out next lifetime kind of feeling. And it, it was just a wholly different thing. And that doesn't even begin to touch what Master was saying. You know, vanish the veils of light and shade, lifted every vapor of sorrow, sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy. You know, love, hate, health, disease, life, death, perish these false shadows. Just anger, greed, good, bad, salvation, lust. I swallowed, transmuted all into a vast ocean of blood of my own one being. Anger, greed, good, bad, salvation, lust. I mean, what a list. Every time I, you, you think, where's the connecting link here? It's just, 
how do you put it together? And then I swallowed and transmuted all of that. He's trying to put into words what Master was trying to say to Dr. Lewis. Can you really just have your whole life disappear? I mean, Dr. Lewis had his wife and he had his children and, you know, he had his world. He was a very advanced soul, but still, he he was living in all that as if it were real. You wouldn't be able to stand your life as it is now. I mean, the, the natural temptation is to say, give me a chance to try. Or the natural temptation is like Dr. Lewis to say, no, sir, I'm not ready. Pardon me? Greater can no love be than this from a life of infinite joy and freedom in God, willingly to embrace limitation, pain, and death for the salvation of others. Every time I read that, I think, you know, what does that really mean? I mean, but in, he says, in, either in one we've already read or one we will read, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, you're just always free once you have it. But they still go through, they willingly embrace limitation, pain, and death. They live in this world. You know, think of William having to fight. Think of Henry being betrayed. Swami Kriyananda being betrayed. Yogananda being betrayed. Just coming here with this Jesus being crucified. They just come here with this, you know, basket full of flowers and everybody just starts beating on them with sticks. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like, I don't know what you would call it. I mean, it would be sort of like uh, going off into, you know, some terrible slum to have to just go get something. I mean, that's probably what it feels like when they come here, like, oh, you know, there's something, some treasure over there you have to go get, and you have to go into these wrecked buildings with people suffering and, you know, hungry and angry and drug-addicted and drinking and beating each other and yelling, and you have to walk through those streets and go and get whatever it is you have to get, and then you have to come back. And in the contrast is so great compared to, to who you may really be, even just thinking of our lives here. So the masters must, they come into this sad and lonely planet and then have us all say, oh, isn't this wonderful, isn't this beautiful? Look, I'm getting married, look, I'm doing this, look, I'm doing that. I got a new job and look at my house, you know. And the masters say, uh-huh, yeah. But, but compared... Excuse me, I'll be right Yeah, well, I think that's what he does. Give me a moment, I'll go into samadhi. <laughs> Well, Swami said as a child, he just lived in the astral world. That was his solution. He said it really was. He was about nine. That was when he, when he was nine and he got that fever and he started having that delirium. And afterwards, as he described it, he became a little trepidatious about any altered states because the high fever had put him into a delusionary state. But there was another factor which he may have included in the, the path. I don't recall right now. But he said... Uh, about that age he began to realize that it was he who was out of step. You know, it was like everyone else was on one wavelength. And about that time too, what also happened to him in Romania was he'd always been the leader of the boys, remember? And he was always able to take the children into his world. And then there was a change in the dynamic. It was a very small community. There were like 10 children or something. But there was a change in the dynamic and some strong-willed boys of a much, uh, much less refined temperament came in. And, and, and they weren't uh, on Swami's wavelength and challenged his leadership and started taking 
the children in another direction. So that happened, and then Swami became acutely aware that the universe he lived in was not shared by his father. And his father, of course, was the the male figure in the... He was the firstborn, so he, he looked like Swami was the firstborn. And he just became aware of this. The way his father related to the world was not at all the way Swami related to the world. And he became very um, concerned that he, he was, he was going to have to learn. And so he, he, he tried to get more into this world. He tried to pull away from what had been that effortless expansion of consciousness until that point. And that went on from when he was nine until, until just before he met Master, until he found the autobiography of a yogi. And he, that was when he went through, well, he went through terrible physical illness and then he went through high school, which was so awful, and then he tried to adjust to high school and did a little bit of college. And then he finally began to at least seek his own way. But it didn't really resolve until he met Master. And then he said... Um, and as after learning to meditate, and I went when I went into superconsciousness, it was exactly the same state and the same moment um, when I had entered it as a child. The same moment. moment, because there's no time. It was he went in. He, he'd been in a timeless zone as a child, and then all that. See, but this is what gives him the perspective. All that had seemed to happen. And he'd gone from childhood and grew up and went through all those experiences. But when he came back into that superconsciousness, nothing had, nothing had changed. If you think of that, that picture that I've often drawn of a, a wheel like that with our, our incarnations like this around the outside edge and then the eternal now in the center of it. And so how you, you move along this edge and you, you, because you can't see the perspective, you feel like things are happening. But if you're standing here, in the center of it, it doesn't matter what happens, spinning there, the center is always the center, it's never different. So you can live from here and all points on the wheel are equidistant. Nothing is past, present or future. So he, he, he lived there as a child and then, you know, this world, he lived in this world, but then he separated himself from it slightly and started living more on the edge. But when he went back into the center, that center dot was the same dot he'd accessed from here, or from here, wherever you access it, you're coming back to the same dot. Fascinating. And worth um, holding, even if we're not there to have Master give us samadhi, or Rajasi won't be willing to give us a touch of ecstasy, these, uh, these images can be powerful meditation images and they can also be powerful um, attitude adjusters you know how, how to solve how to solve problems I was uh, I was reflecting on um, you know certain circumstances you find are less congenial than others and just feeling impatient with uncongenial circumstances with the crabby lady at the YMCA you know and her radio or her personal device, whatever you call it, making all the noise. And, and then, you know, my mind shifts often to Jairam in prison or the possibility of being in a concentration camp when we're not just talking about the inconvenience, you know. We're talking about a brutality, inescapable. And, and there's just, it's so in our consciousness that it, if this doesn't please me, I will escape from it. 
circumstantially. But what if? What if it's you're dying of cancer or you know, you have some agonizing physical condition or, um, of course, which happens to everyone, certainly to me, you have some intense mental condition. You know, the, the, and I, I mean, I can't always by any means escape it. But the, the picture that you could is certainly heartening, isn't it? That it, it's only on the periphery and if I can just move into the center, I'll find that dot where it's always. And I guess that's... Be, I mean, you, you'd like to think from that dot that you would start enjoying everything else, but I guess what they were saying is... But also when he says it's just such a revolution, and then just think of Dr. Lewis, whom Swami always reminded us was a Boston dentist. He never would really sort of extrapolate from that, but he would just say that. He was, after all, a Boston dentist. <laughs> Meaning, he grew up in a small New England town. I mean, Swami was raised in Europe and you know, took his first transatlantic trip when he was six months old. And, you know, he was this... I, um, I interviewed Swami's brother uh, years ago when I was writing the first time about Swami Kriyananda. And he, he said, in his way, that no one at SRF, he said, except Rajasi, was really in any way like Swami. He, he said everyone else just, they had... Uh, they were not from the same... I don't want to use exactly what the right words were, but Swami was from a very elevated caste. You know, he was he was consorting with the the elite of our society and on many different levels, and highly educated, multilingual, um, multinational, and um, and many of the people there just had very very narrow upbringings, and had very little exposure to the kind of culture and art and. Yeah, yeah. So that's so. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't realize God from being a Boston dentist, but it means that you haven't had the same perspective on life. So, using him as an example, where let's just say that the the sense of the possible is smaller, and and the wife and children, you know, and how much that figures in to the life and the the office and the career. I mean, what would happen if you just really saw that it was all just an illusion, just shadows and light, and just perceived that as he was trying to get Master to help him to perceive, just see it, but not really be able to stay there. And then you have to come back. Well, that's where Raja said, you won't be able to stand your life when you find yourself suddenly just trapped in the mundane again. I mean, I, I, I was... Uh, for some reason, I always end up talking about the why, but we were we were in the in the lockers, and I came in there to dress, and there was some other woman close by. I said, "Don't worry, I just I'll be out here in fifteen seconds." And I was. I just dressed and was gone. And uh, she said, "My, you're fast, aren't you?" And I just said, without even thinking, I said, "The mundane side of life bores me." I said, "I do it. I just get through it as fast as I can." But that's true. It's just like. You know, I'm not going to spend a long time putting my shoes on. It's just like I'm going to just put my shoes on and get on to the next thing. But I'm not, it's not like I'm always in a rush. It's just that stuff, Just let's just go through it. But uh, there's still, even then, I just chafe at washing the dishes and having to cook and going shopping. And, you know, I do it all because it has to be done. But it's like, oh, wow, if I never had to touch this stuff, it would be so delightful. But, but that's just inconvenience. Imagine finding yourself having to eat and sleep and 
cook and take care of your patients and play with your children when you had just stepped out into perfect bliss. But you weren't still in it. Um, I wonder if also part of that is the... We, we, we're sitting here and we're trying to imagine what that bliss is like. And, he, and it's just utterly, completely beyond imagination. And so, you know, we're, uh, you know, I think, well, you know, I could, sure, you know, give me a little taste of that. But I suspect that it just, you, it would just be such a completely, utterly different, completely mind-blowing, boggling experience that if you couldn't stay there, if you hadn't developed your meditation abilities, a skill to where you could at least go back in there tonight or tomorrow morning, then it would be just, it would probably be really depressing or something. Well, this is what they say. This is, I mean, you know, it's, it, this, is, this is a very specific thing that Swami gathered from Master and put there because of our um, just naivete. Well, Patanjali talked about it over and over and over again. And, he, you know, he gave us a picture at the same time. And I, I don't exactly know where to put this. I don't feel like a very advanced soul. I mean, I just, compared to what real advancement is, I'm just too, have too many vrittis and too many attachments and too many this isn't too many. That's just thousands and thousands of things. Um, at the same time, we must be at least, you know, somewhere on the spectrum because look at the life we got. And so because we got this life, there's got to be a lot more going on than I feel. Be just circumstances say that. And sometimes I can think of it from the point of view of um, a very deep-seated desire to serve the guru that is greater than other desires. But still, from the point of view of what you know, they're really talking about, it's so different. Um, so I, don't, I never know where to put any of that, and therefore, I just try to put it nowhere. It's, it's just impossible for me to even begin to think of what any of it means. So just p- p- don't quit. Just put one foot in front of the other, and every day just think about what can I do to make this a good one. And... Uh, if it isn't, or if one doesn't succeed, then you just write that one off and start over again. I don't know. I don't have an alternative to it. This is. Um, this may not be the gospel according to anybody but me, but <laughs> I don't know what to think. And you have Dr. Lewis asking Master for samadhi and samadhi, and Master telling him, "Oh, come on, are you kidding?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pardon me, are you ready? So it seems, so it seems, so it seems. That's why I think, that's why I think saints often, their, their inner lives are inexplicable to us because we can't really comprehend. I mean, they can put it into their diaries or into their words and so on, but I, I remember very vividly, and I, I believe I read this in a book 
rather than from a movie, but um, I think it was uh, Bernadette, St. Bernadette, just being in agony toward the, in, in some moment in her life toward the end because of some very unkind things she'd done to her mother. My mother worked so hard to make that onion soup and then I refused to eat it. Something like that. And there was such a, a, an intensity of disappointment in her heart for having done that. I mean, that's a very human thing. But still, it, it, you look at that and you think, what, you know, what is she really experiencing there? And because that implies such a sensitivity of consciousness that a vibration that small would actually create a dissonance. Whereas for the average person, their vibrations are so dissonant they wouldn't even know it happened, what to speak of having it be uh, uh, something intense that they would have to try to expiate in their heart. So, I mean, that, 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 that's one of the this little thoughts about this orb. St. Anthony in the tomb with the d- demons trying to smash the tomb and him having to just hold fast to his faith and determination to realize God even if they're going to smash the tomb and bring it down on top of his head. What, what, what state are you in when those things are possible? We just have our, we have, we have our little, I have my little tiny universe that I move through and it's enough. I don't need more. I mean, let me put it differently. I'm not going to go out and quest after demons to bring them in. If they want to come visit, I will deal with them, but I'm definitely not going to go looking for them. Yeah. But so it seems. Everybody says so. Hmm. I remember, this is just slightly off the subject, but I was just remembering it. There was this woman who was extremely mentally unbalanced, but she had the good karma to get involved with Ananda for a while and she was very generous. Actually, um, she bought all the people in the monastery at that time, the astrological bangles, the gold-silver ones. Because at the time they cost $150, which was so far beyond our budget. She bought about 25 or 30 of them and gave them all to the monks and nuns. And she gave Swami the money for his jeweled bangle. Um, so she, was, she had a lot of money and uh, she gave it to him, a lot of it to him for a while. But she was really mentally unbalanced, and the nuns took her on. We took care of her and tried to help her for quite a, for several years at least. Finally, she just she couldn't hold it. But uh, she, she was possessed, at least according to the Ayurvedic physician that we had, the Indian doctor who come. And she was uh, genuinely possessed, he said. And she certainly... If I ever knew anyone who was possessed, it was probably her. And when she was asleep, her entities would wander around the monastery. Yeah. And uh, uh, they came into my trailer one night, and I, I mean, I, it scared me quite a lot. <laughs> it was very, I could feel them, and I was, it made me very nervous. Then uh, they visited Swam, uh, Seva. God bless her, Seva was so down-to-earth and solid she just talked to him. You guys are not behaving right. This is really a bad thing that you're doing. And she just, I mean, they were disincarnate. They weren't in physical bodies, but they were just bad people. That's all. And she just felt like them, like any other bad people that had come to visit her. <laughs> but it was, it was a, a real revelation for me. Yeah, it worked. Because uh, in that uh, realm, fear is what connects you. So if you become frightened, then you become vulnerable. 
But she wasn't scared. She was, she was a very solid, down-to-earth person, and she wasn't easily frightened. She was very courageous. She just scolded them, told them to leave her alone, leave her girls alone, and definitely leave the woman alone that they were... I mean, I don't know whether she ever, they, it worked or not, but then the Ayurvedic doctor gave us things to hang in our trailers and stuff. It was quite a... It was an adventure. <laughs> I mean, the, the story actually had a sad ending because eventually she went away and I think she finally jumped off a building or something like that. But it was interesting. Swamiji said she wasn't really responsible for what she did. I think her entities, you know, pulled her off the building. Or Swami did? Yeah, because she had really, really mixed karma. And she was very sweet and very sincere and completely out of her mind and had been on drugs for so long that, you know, her brain was just boiled. Yeah. She was a strange character. I've been reading about that chapter in, uh, you know, in the Ananda thing. Yeah, when Swami went away to seclusion, there were lots of letters back and forth. How, and how is she doing? And, you know, we had all these different, we're so naive, we had all these different plans, you know, we were just going to make her well. Was so we were so out, out of our league, but nonetheless, I think we did her a lot of good, and and she did a lot for us too. Yeah, because I mean, Swami wore those stones for a long time. He's gradually replaced a few of them, but he had had to sell his astrological. He sold his astrological bangle, his Navratna, his nine jewel bangle, to buy Ananda. And so then he didn't have one. Uh, let's see, it would have been seventy. Yeah, because when, when he went to India into seclusion in the spring of 77, he had just gotten it, and he took it. I am um, a, a friend of mine who was a jeweler, um, a Jewish jeweler, um, actually ended up buying all the stones for Swami, and we, he, they came back and forth through registered mail. I didn't know that you could say, he would send these little piles of emeralds and things through registered mail it was apparently safe and we, Swami would look at them and then decide which one he would like and um, the, the man who was doing it for us um, I was a daughter to him so he was telling all the Los Angeles jewelers where he was my daughter's guru needs some, some jewels <laughs> my daughter's guru needs jewels that's what he was doing and uh, Swamiji wanted it to be made Uh, once all the jewels were selected he was going to set it in the most plain possible setting in silver and Harold who had extremely ostentatious taste extremely he just couldn't bear it and Swami was so considerate that he allowed Harold to design it instead and when it came it was about half or three quarters of an inch of, of beaten gold not just gold, but beaten gold, which beaten gold reflects like just like crazy, yeah, super shiny. You know, it's, it's pounded, so it has all those facets. So we had a half inch of beaten gold with all these big stones in it like this. And it, it was just, Swami was just... <laughs> you know, he just... But he wore it for quite a long time, even though he didn't even see Harold. Harold never came to visit or anything. But it was like, it, it was one of those extremely touching acts of friendship. It was so not what he wanted. But then actually, it served him because it was so garish from any rational person's point of view. First of all, it looked like it belonged to a king, which we all really enjoyed. It looked like a king's crown. He didn't enjoy it, but we enjoyed it. And, uh, and then it was so garish 
because he was traveling, he went to India. And so he must have had it like that in India. And uh, it was so hot, you know, he had short sleeves, he tried to keep it hidden. People would say like, is that real? And he, he had a perfect answer. It looks real, doesn't it? <laughs> he, I, he might have even waited till, did he wait till Harold died before he changed it? He may have. He waited a long time. And he just wore it that way out of friendship. I mean, the, 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 the nuance of sensitivity, because Harold would never have known. But it, Swami was on a different level with that. And also, I mean, of course, it cost a lot more and it wasn't Harold's money. But what happened was Swami was also trying to save a little money because uh, the woman had given him a, a set sum, which was like maybe $10,000, which now I think is probably the cost of, you know, one of those stones. I mean, it was uh, amazing, but he was trying to save some of it to use for something else and Harold spent it almost to the penny. And so it was also like Swami had to say, you know, that money was given to me for one purpose and I was trying to deflect it for another. He said, and it wasn't right. Divine Mother just took it in hand. I think all that was also happening. Swami was watching all of that happen at the same time. All right, let's take a short break. <laughs> so this is number 99. This is this one that I, you know, you read these things, but they don't, you don't always remember them. But when this one finally struck me, I have really enjoyed it. I've remembered number 99. Rumors and gossip tend to flourish when groups of people are gathered together. The master once made the following comment on this tendency. My master, Sri Yukteswar, used to say, If it is not something I can say to everybody, I don't want to hear it. The Master often warned us not to go to worldly places for relaxation and enjoyment, not even for milkshakes. I don't know, Swami always is talking about milkshakes. Did you all grow up with milkshakes? Did you like go out for a milkshake? Yeah. Swami often went out for a milkshake. (laughs) Not even for milkshakes. Yeah, okay. You're, uh, the, um, you know, you have to also appreciate that whereas now in SRF everything is so rigidly controlled and the idea that Master would have to say don't go out for milkshakes doesn't make any sense in the context of the <coughs> way the monastic order is organized now. But when he was there, it was completely disorganized. Swami was the first person to pry, try to put any organization into the, ma- the monastic life. You have to really think about that. And it was sort of a hotel. That's how Swami described Mount Washington. People just kind of came and went. And Swami describes his efforts to get the monks to, you know, just embrace a modicum of discipline. They, they, they couldn't understand why they couldn't go out dancing on Saturday night. He's, I think that's the phrase he puts. Because, you know, they were there, they were enthusiastic, but there was no, it wasn't a Catholic religious order. It was just this place, and Master was renting rooms, and he was there. I mean, it was very um, disorganized. So, the Master often warned us. He didn't even say, he didn't even forbid us. Warned us not to go to worldly places for relaxation and enjoyment. Not even for milkshakes. Though this he said only to a few of the younger ones. He said also, you must report it when you see anyone here commit a serious offense against our rule. 
Someone once reported to him, I saw so-and-so going into an ice cream parlor. (laughs) For a milkshake, you presume, perhaps for a Sunday. You don't know once you get inside. The master dismissed the statement impatiently. I didn't mean that kind of infraction. Don't bother me with such petty gossip. Report serious infractions, however, those which might harm others in our way of life. If someone does something seriously wrong, to say nothing about it would be treachery. Supposing someone put poison in another person's drink and you knew about it, wouldn't you speak out? Were you to rationalize instead, well, it wasn't I who poisoned that drink, it isn't my business, you'd be as guilty as the poisoner. When anyone here goes against our way of life, it is in a way poisoning it. When you know of any serious wrong, you must report what you know. You would be shirking your own responsibility not to do so. You know, that's a very interesting... I, 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 um, I used to have this dilemma, which I resolved quite simply, and, and you'll hear in a very simple and obvious direction. Sometimes people would talk to me and they said, but don't tell Swami. And I said, Swami, somebody just told me something I know you need to know. And he said, but don't tell Swami. I should tell you, shouldn't he? He said, of course. (laughs) Because I said, their thought in not telling you is thinking that somehow it wouldn't be helpful to tell you, but of course it would be helpful to tell you. And then he, he told me without, I mean, this book hadn't been published. He said, Master always insisted that we do so. And you know, and um, fortunately, I was never in a position where it made, somebody made me swear not to tell Swami. I couldn't have done that, and even if I had, I probably would have just broken it. But it was—it was a very interesting point, and this—that's what Swami's trying to talk about. I mean, Master's trying to talk about here when he's saying a serious infraction. Somebody's doing something that's really um, putting them in jeopardy, and and conceivably everyone. You don't—you don't help by feeling well. I need to keep their confidence. You know, I don't want to go speaking something wrong. You want to help them. You have to tell the one who can help them. And so, you know, Swami just always heard anything that I knew that... And then he would deal with it appropriately. Part of it was, of course, I completely trusted him. It was like, it wasn't like he was going to go do something um, that that would horrify me. Um, Well, sometimes it might surprise me, but it would not horrify me. Because he, he was the one among us who knew what to do. And how could I just sit on information like that um, when I was incapable of resolving it, but he was capable. So I lived through exactly what he's talking about here. And it's worth noting because it's also our life here. You know, if somebody's doing something that really jeopardizes them or the situation, if, if there's poison in the drink, you have to say there's poison in the drink and you have to speak to someone you trust so that you won't be frightened by what happens next. Some people think, this is still Master talking, this is the part that I just love. Some people think, oh, he knows about it. Naturally, God sees these things. He doesn't always talk, however. This is Master trying to describe this, his consciousness. He doesn't always talk, however. My role here is very difficult I have to play both divine and human parts. You can see Master saying, my role is so difficult. (laughs) I have to play both human and divine parts. Of course, not in that manner, but when you think about what he's saying. My inner and my outer natures are different. 
In my divine self, I see these things, but sometimes that self remains aloof until something is called to my attention. My outer self plays a human role. It is not easy to play both roles at the same time, though I do my best to live as God wants me to. This question that I... I'm going to pause for a moment. This question that I ponder so often about what, what was really going on in Swami's consciousness. How much of this world does a master really experience? I was so interested in this because that's sort of what I saw in him. I saw this capacity to know but not know and it was just very, very confusing. It's exactly what Master describes here. He had to be told. You couldn't just say he must know. No, you had to tell him partly because it was our responsibility to be alert and conscientious enough to know what to do. And, and he, you couldn't just sit back and say, well, he's omniscient, he'll sort it out. And yet, he would, Swamiji would show himself, because that's who I knew more than Master, of course, obviously, show himself to be aware of what was going on on levels that you just could not figure out how he could, he could know. I always felt completely comfortable in sharing anything with Swamiji because, as I said, because I completely trusted that whatever he did would be what was needed. But I did always talk to him. I never, um, well, I can't say never, but I certainly did not intentionally just presume that he knew. I always was there to make sure if, and you know, it was an important role that I played because my eyes and ears were open all the time. So here's Master saying, I do my best to, to live as God wants me to, But you mustn't assume, thinking, oh, he knows that it will always be all right. You, too, have to behave responsibly. That's the other part of it. Irresponsibility is not the way to grow spiritually. Always speak out, therefore, when something serious demands your involvement. Yeah. Yeah. Big questions. Okay, one more. These important points are touched on again later in another context, close to the end of this book. Well, I've spent a lot of time on this 99, just trying to think how God knows, but he doesn't always talk. How myself is one part and my outer self is another, and it's difficult to play both roles. Just You just don't have any idea what's going on, do you? Swamiji once put it, let's see, Swamiji talked about it once in an interesting context. Um, another actually very well-known teacher came to see Swamiji and was very humbly before him and asked him a question. And the question had to do with this man who had his own disciples saying that sometimes his disciples would dream about him and he would have long and meaningful interactions with them in their dreams, but he had no awareness of it. And uh, it's, uh, when I asked Swami a question like that, one time I've said this, he, he answered me by saying, superconsciousness never sleeps. And when you're in your non-physical self in communication with someone, that's not happening through your brain. That's happening through another dimension of your own nature. And merely because everybody's asleep, your superconsciousness is never sleeping. Sleeping is a physical reality, not a, not a, a level of, not from that level. So that was, that was part of the answer. Um, and then in, in another context, this was very early on, like in the 70s. Um, 
he sort of mused. Partly it was the issue of dreams and Swami saying people coming to him and telling him that they had a dream about him last night and Swami gave them this certain advice. And Swami's comment was, the advice is always what I would have wanted to say to them. And sometimes what I wanted to say to them. You know, I wanted to tell that person such and so a thing, but the opportunity never came. But then it happened when they were asleep in a dream. And then Swami would sort of muse in, in sort of the way that Master's musing. Odd that I wouldn't be conscious of it. Just sort of like acknowledging that it was self-evidently a projection of his consciousness, but odd that I wouldn't be conscious of it. And then he talked about the, the sort of um, d- different levels that we live on and how um, the lower self is not aware of what the higher self is doing. But then Swami described essentially the progress, the process of spiritual realization is the bridging of that gap until the outward self is fully aware of what the inward self is doing. But then, of course, Master just um, twiddles with it again by saying, but not always, because the self doesn't always speak. And so there's, there's two sides to it. One is the fascinating insight into Master's own consciousness, and the other is, therefore, you cannot abdicate responsibility and just assume you know, that he would know. That was what he, I mean, that's the end point here. He's really trying to make that clear, that we have a responsibility to act and that in an odd way, you know, this is what, when, when I was with Swami, he needed me and others to act. He, he couldn't be everywhere at once. He needed us to be an extension of his awareness and to, to bring back to him what he needed to know. So you're serving the, the we're, we're not in that situation here, but we, we, we do have to think like this. To, to be irresponsible is not the road to freedom. It's very, very interesting. And how exactly it will manifest, it manifests in our life, I'm not quite sure, but it's a moment-by-moment it's a moment thing to remember. I mean, I do see it sometimes. We, we have to take care of each other. You can't just close your eyes to people's wrong actions. At least you have to try. And that doesn't necessarily mean you confront them, though. You know, sometimes it's really much better to let someone else handle it. Okay? Number 100. People in groups tend to develop a special in vocabulary, almost a jargon. The words can be used almost mindlessly, like waving a flag absent-mindedly. The Master gave us the following example of that tendency. A fundamentalist Christian once announced to me fervently, you must be saved by the blood. Produce a quart, I challenged her. (laughs) The blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross is what that was. She was so astonished. How could she respond to this literal demand? The fact is, she had no clear idea of what she was talking about. She had been merely quoting a phrase repeated mindlessly by other dogmatic so-called believers. Master didn't have much regard for that kind of religion, did he? He was just... He didn't come to coddle people. You know, it's in, in one of our commentaries recently, on our Sunday commentary, Swami was speaking about people just not having the energy to actually really consider what they're saying. And when you, uh, and, and in many places, Swamiji talks about how lower energy is always threatened by higher energy. And, and often it's so much easier 
to just saved by the blood of Christ and then you don't you don't as she, he said you don't really even know what you're saying you don't have a clear like really clear idea of what that is you just say it over and over and it has an emotional response it's not like it it doesn't affect you but um, that what I have always loved about Master's teachings especially the way Swami brought it through is that you can always just keep going and get it down to its absolute clearest point and Swami's writing especially I mean, when he would speak extemporaneously he would often say um, stunningly wonderful things but especially when he would write and had the time to polish it and he would just bring an idea down to such a clear focus that you could really know you could, you could really think through and I think it's very important to sometimes people use this phrase it's too intellectual but Swami's not intellectual Swami's just clear which is very very different intellectual is often vague it's just using big words and throwing them around and Swami said himself whenever I begin to write I don't know what the word he was too elegantly or something like that he said it's always a, a screen for realizing I don't know what I really want to say <laughs> he says and then I, I bring it back to simple and if I can't say it simply it's because I don't know what I want to say and so he always brings it back to simple so that it says exactly what he really wants to say and it's very helpful for us to, to gradually train our minds to, to really be able to look at things clearly I've had people tell me you know well I go more by the heart I'm really not intellectual, and they'll often say, like you are. But I go more by the heart. And yes, it's true. I go a lot. You know, someone asked me, which aspects of God do I enjoy? I said, wisdom and joy. Because that is wisdom. The wisdom aspect of God is a lot of what I live through. And not everybody does. There's other manifestations. But sometimes we dismiss it as intellectual but what is really being asked of us is clarity and and much of the time when we can't figure out what to do it's just because we just haven't brought the issue to a clear enough focus or we're just saying that we're saved by the blood of Jesus and we don't really know what we're talking about I like to be very careful of course words are my stock and trade so I have to be very very careful with them but it's it's really a good idea to hear yourself and make sure you know what you're saying. I've, when people sometimes first start on the spiritual path and they have to deal with family that might not be too supportive or friends who are not too supportive and you know, they get stuck out there trying to explain things. And you know, my first advice is don't ever try to explain something that you don't actually understand. If somebody challenges you about reincarnation or about cosmic consciousness or the lineage or Babaji and the Himalayas, just perfectly casually just shrug your shoulders and say you know wow I really don't have any idea but this is what I do know you know I, I'm nervous when I go into the temple and I feel happy when I come out you know, if that's all you know that's all you need to know and I'll just stay with that until I see what happens next whenever there's a, a principle of public speaking which is called the first law of holes H-O-L-E-S which is when you find yourself in one stop digging, <laughs> which means when you're talking and you realize you don't know what you're talking about, stop talking. One of our friends many years ago tried to give a sermon on the difference between Sabakalpa and Nirbakalpa Samadhi. 
that's when I learned about the first law of holes because he didn't stop talking. <laughs> he kept going for quite a long time after he was way in over his head. <laughs> but it's, uh, back your spiritual life up always to what you actually have real clarity about. And then, you know, build from there. Take a paragraph of Swami's books, take conversations with Yogananda, and you know, just work with it a little bit. Much of it is just totally confusing. And just ever is. I've, I've mentioned the whole concept of time. Swami Jesus to this day, I mean, he, he just had this explanation he thought was so vivid and so clear about the planet where nothing moves. Yeah, we all know the planet where nothing moves because he would do it over and over. He was so excited about the planet where nothing moves because he thought it was a perfect illustration of the illusion of time. I heard him at least a dozen times. I'm probably at least a dozen times. I still, at this day, I have no idea why the planet where nothing moves has anything to do with time. <laughs> I just, I can't get it. I, I, got, I finally got the circle and the dot in the center. I understood time when he wrote the time tunnel. I got it closer because the planet that never moves is just beyond me. But he, you know, for him it worked. So it's not like everything that, uh, and many other people thought it was terrific. It's not like... Um, you have to understand everything. But what you do understand, try to understand it. And then, and then you know, a lot of it is impressionistic. You just get a feeling. The words sound good and you, you've picked up a concept here and there. But what, what, he, what we're really saying is low energy is not a good idea. Low energy is, it's, it's always better to put out at least as much energy as you can. And people are different. You know, I have a very, very avid mind. And I've had a very avid mind since I was a very small person. So it comes naturally to me, this is what I do. And other people have, are more avid in other directions, so nobody should be like everybody else. But try to be, strive for crystal clarity in whatever you're doing. Okay? 101. The Master's approach to truth was pragmatic. During his early years in America, certain persons were claiming in public that they would live forever. Study them, the master advised when someone asked for his opinion. Look for a few obvious signs. Is their hair falling out? (laughs) Is it turning gray? Do they wear dentures? (laughs) Are their faces becoming lined? If they manifest any of the common symptoms of mortality, how can they be believed when they claim they'll live forever? He says, quite simply, ignore those claims. Those people are courting, counting on not being around when the time comes for proving their claim. (laughs) (laughs) They'll have slipped away conveniently to the astral world and won't have to face the people they've hoodwinked. Meanwhile, they enjoy the glitter of a false notoriety. You know, there's so much, I'm sure, there's always true, but in Master's times, there are so many different scams that now it's the Breatharians. Do you all meet, every so often you meet the Breatharians? Breatharians sort of went through the world that I lived in. I don't know how many years ago. Are, there. are the Breatharians still around? Oh, the Breatharians are... You, you, gradually, you gradually amend your diet until you can live only on breath. Breatharians. And the process, as I recall, is that you gradually move toward more and more white food. And it's like, you, yeah, yeah, I know. You sort of think, 
but you just you know you keep shifting your diet and and the, and then finally you know, just before you can live on air alone you're living only on things that are white i think the founder of breatharianism was discovered at McDonald's in the middle of the night or something really <laughs> awful you know something really awful like that yeah it was bad but it, also it's just like but you know um somewhere i read the karma for spiritual pride is to get involved in false teaching. And so that you, you know, you're just humiliated by some crazy wrong path because you've been so proud of your spirituality. I, I, I really have never known any breatharians. They've moved through my world every once in a while. But part of you just thinks, who would be attracted to it? And how could you fall for it? <laughs> no, he's skillful. My other favorite was Arnold Earhart, who um, he was the one who uh, said that mucus is the cause of all illness, which it may be, but he also said mucus was the cause of death, and that if the mucusless diet became, we went through all of these at Ananda. They just all went through the mucusless diet, and I think basically it was like fruit, or I don't know. I don't really. It was never clear to me exactly what mucus was. I mean, I could just never quite get it. But, so it was a big thing, and so everyone was following the mucusless diet, and Arnold Arrow was going to live forever because he didn't have any mucus in his body, and mucus was the cause of death. So at the age of about 50, he stepped off a curb and was hit by a truck. <laughs> and just that was it. It's just like God said, don't be ridiculous, and just took him off the planet. <laughs> I didn't want him to die, but it was... Pardon me? The truck driver had a lot of music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. And there's one more paragraph. What is the use, anyway, of keeping the physical body indefinitely? Even were it to remain perfect in glowing condition, the body, or rather the very ego that constructed it, is a prison. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? You aren't this body. You aren't this ego. You are the immortal soul. And superconsciousness alone does immortality exist. What a beautiful way to take it. Yeah. I mean, why would you even want it? Swami talks about, um, he even talks about the traditional conception of heaven where you are in a body pretty much like this one and you just sit around the, at the, the throne, around the throne of God singing hymns. And he said, and you have an eternity essentially in this form with this ego and so I said that to me sounds like hell not heaven <laughs> but this is and, but we started with samadhi just completely revolutionizing everything that you're thinking that it's just it, and so you, you have the I'm saved by the blood of Jesus and I'm going to go uh, the song Amazing Grace and when we've been there 10,000 years and it's just we've just begun to sing his heavenly praises and still the picture is just somehow that you'll just be just like this and you'll just keep going and going and going and going. Whereas the real realization is just to abandon all of this. I mean, these are the times that I think we must be very, very advanced because all of this seems so crystal clear, doesn't it? But think how many lifetimes we've had to live through these things because many very sincere people are quite committed to, to pictures. They may still 
be much more advanced in their hearts in the sense of their sympathy and their compassion and their self-discipline, their devotion to God, their courage. I mean, what you believe is just a tiny part of who you are. But still, it's, um, it's very pleasant to be liberated from teachings that bewilder you. It's so nice to be in a path where you can just keep, um, just keep thinking and not reach the point where you have to stop thinking. I mean, it's, I can't comprehend Rajasi saying, if I gave you a moment of ecstasy, you wouldn't be able to stand your life. I can't comprehend that because I don't have the consciousness. But it's not the same as just, you've got to believe it because that's what we say. You can always at least follow a trail and understand what we're... And we're, it's, we're so gifted. Also, it's this time, Dwapara Yuga, where, as before, the teachings were more esoteric. Um, Jesus had to speak in parables. He, he, you know, his whole story is very little that's explicit. But Master's just so explicit, and Swami's even more explicit. It's just so helpful. We're so lucky. Don't you think so? Yes, yes. We have very, very, very good karma. However it may feel on such certain days, <laughs> the fact is, we're deeply blessed. All right, friends. So we take two weeks off. And so I'll see you again in June, I guess, is what that actually means. Uh, We went from 97th through 101.